a question that I want to ask you, and you can maybe think about, as I'm sure you probably have thought about it. Will the ungodly actions of others ever have consequences from God? Will the ungodly actions of others ever have consequences from God? And then, if they will, will you be satisfied with those consequences that God gives out? Habakkuk is a book of a man approaching God with a complaint. He complains to the Lord, and then he doesn't like God's response. So he complains again, and God responds again. And then how, might you wonder, would Habakkuk react to that second response? He's a unique prophet because Habakkuk, unlike the others, actually never looked at Israel, the audience who would have first read this or heard about this. He never actually looks at Israel and accuses them of anything in particular. He actually never talks about them. He's a prophet of them, but he never, in our book, never speaks to them. This is what makes Habakkuk seem a little bit different than the other minor prophets. But instead, he looks at God in all but says, do you care? There's a lot bad going on here. You can see it. Do you care? If you're a child to Christian parents, one of the things that hopefully you would first learn is that God is a good God. Probably what you kind of start telling your kids is you might catechize them or ask them questions or or seek to give them answers to in the scriptures that God is good. He's a good God. And you may even remember the song, "Our, Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that our God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. But what about the mess that seems to just be ever present in our world? If he's so big, so strong, so mighty, so good, does he care about what's going on down here? You grow up, and you may ask of God, like Habakkuk did, with so much tragedy and evil in the world, are you really good? And your struggle with this, I think, is fine, wondering that, asking the Lord to answer that. But what is God's answer to that? How did God respond to Habakkuk? Is God in charge when evil and despair exists? How might he speak of himself? He is in charge, he says, but he is in charge on his own terms. He teaches Habakkuk this, leaving Habakkuk with a decision. If I decide things like this, if I unfold my will like this, how will you respond? Now to give you a preview of what I want to speak about for the next little bit, what I, what I hope to work to do is to show the back and forth between Habakkuk and God and then Habakkuk's tremendous response of faith. But then secondly, uh, I'd like to leave us with a bigger, I think more powerful picture of what's happening behind the scenes that take Habakkuk's lesson and actually enlarges it in view of the rest of Scripture. So I've got two points. That's actually six points. But they're categorized in two points, so it's not going to be that long of a sermon, right? The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see a glimpse of, of the lesson that God is teaching Habakkuk the lesson that Habakkuk is learning through these series of complaints and responses. Habakkuk is approaching God as someone he believes doesn't care about everything. He wonders if God is passive. I wonder if you think that. Is God passive in your own life? Or maybe even as things might crumble here or there, is God negligent and maybe not holding on to something or maybe allowing something to be let loose? Is God negligent or passive in those things? This is how Habakkuk seems to be tipping toe the line of his questions of God. But I want you to see, firstly, how this prophecy speaks to us. And by us, I mean place yourself in the context 
of those who would first hear it speaks to these Israelites as they would hear of God's word to Habakkuk. Habakkuk complains. You see this in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Let me read it to you. Turn with your eyes. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? I'd imagine some of you have prayed that very thing. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is saying life in Israel is horrible. God's word is neglected by these, well, they should be the people of God. And the outcome of this is an ethic of violence and injustice. And worst of all, all of this is being tolerated by Israel's leaders. These leaders are shown to be corrupt. So Habakkuk calls, asking God to work. He wants to know why God is idle, maybe positively patient, or even dangerously negligent. This is his cry out to the Lord. Israel here is spiritually corrupt and pressured politically, and Habakkuk doubts the the faithful will ever have justice and evil seen by their own eyes. Now, frankly, this isn't new. God's people very often speak to the Lord like this. God's children have often complained like this. Job wondered why God seemed absent in Job chapter 3. Israel cried out from the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17. They said, is the Lord among us or not? But look at verse 5. God responds here. Now, friend, just as an aside, just for a moment, notice the kindness that a relationship with God has. He responds. We pray to the Lord several times on Sunday morning. God willing, you pray to the Lord all the time. He listens. He hears you. Because he's in a relationship with you. You're a child of his. In the same way that a child might call out to their mom or their dad, they hear them, right? In the same way, he responds. And how sweet and good that is. The sovereign God of the universe hears this prophet and speaks back. He says in verses 5 through 11 that he's actually very aware of the reality and the depth of his own people's corruption. He's very aware of how far they have wandered off from his good law. In fact, in hear this, he's so aware, he's so displeased by his own people that he tells this prophet that he's going to summon the armies of Babylon, which are the enemies of God's people, and the armies of or the armies against God's people, their enemies will actually bring God's justice on his own behalf on Israel. Think of it. He's so upset and incensed at them slash us that he's going to crush their idolatry, stamp out their sin, and he's going to do it by using their own enemies. You can imagine this really turns on Habakkuk, right? He may have been wanting something else. Aren't you going to do something about all the sin and evil that's going around in the world? And God says, yes, I will do it to you, and I will use your foes to do it. Habakkuk thinks that God's holiness should have prohibited him from using the corrupt Babylonians. I mean, Israel's bad, but Babylon is way worse, yet God will have justice even on Israel because of their sin. But he will use awful people to do it. This is according to the counsel and the will of God's good nature. Like messages of Micah and Isaiah before, God uses terrifying empires often to devour Israel. Why? 
because of Israel's injustice and evil. Habakkuk was upset about Israel's injustice and evil, and so is God, and he will use, amazingly, as a twist, their own enemies to wreak havoc on them. Habakkuk may, and you may, be perplexed by this, where God's response is a challenge to Habakkuk's complaint by challenging him to trust in God's good timing, God's good will, God's good desire, even if it doesn't seem like something you and I would ever create or may think up on our own. God can bring about good. He promises he will bring about good, even on those who are evil, and God can bring about mercy, and he promises to bring upon mercy by his own timing and in his own way. It's a hard pill to swallow, but this is God's word to God's people. The call to Habakkuk, and I think to us today, is to trust God with all of this. To look rightly at a world and say, God, will you not do anything about it? And then let him do something about it on his own timing, according to his own will. Far too often, I think you and I pray, God, do this or do that, instead of God reveal to me how you're sanctifying me through this or through that. I would imagine some of you have true enemies in your own life. The ex that will never go away. The, the friend who constantly is throwing spears at you. The child who has just broken your heart and defaming your own upbringing. And you, you want God to correct it and fix it. And he's calling you to trust him, the good God, who will do all justice. Comforting, isn't it? Well, you, maybe like Habakkuk, do not like that response. So I want you to see how this prophecy speaks about them. So the first one was Israel, but then how it speaks about Babylon, Habakkuk's enemies. Predictably, like most of us would react, Habakkuk is upset with God's answer and offers up then a second complaint that you see in verses 12 of chapter 1 all the way through verses 1 of chapter 2. The foundation of his complaint is that Babylon, also called here the Chaldeans, Babylon are even worse than Israel. It's fine for God to want to purify his own people, but why in the world would he use his enemies to do so? They're more violent. They're more corrupt. They've defiled, they've defied their own military power to where they treat humans like animals. They, they gather them up like, like fish in a net and then abuse them in order to expand their own empire. These people are the worst. They demolish nations, treat conquered people like slaves in order to build more roads or more buildings. So Habakkuk asks how such a holy, good, and just God would want to use corrupt people as instruments in history. I, he demands, an explanation, and depicts himself, I think in a pretty cocky way, uh, as a watchman on the walls. God, I need you to answer me, and I'll be watching over your people as I wait for this to happen. I think this is uh, not a way to respond, awaiting God's response. Now, I don't know about you, this seems pretty off-putting, but little complaining Habakkuk demands a response from the Lord. He wants to know something. I wonder if you've ever shaken your fists at God in the sky like this. God, why are you doing what you're doing when you're basically saying, God, ask me for what I do, not your will, but mine. How very often we maybe cry out to the Lord like this. And so God replies, again, what I didn't deserve it, but a gracious thing for God to do. Here's this prophet speak to him, and he replies. 
God tells Habakkuk to get down some tablets and write down all that he's about to say. There's a famous sportscaster who has a daily show, and whenever he says that he's about to have a big point, he says, hey, turn on the camera, focus on this, record this. In the same way, he's telling Habakkuk, hey, get out something and write down what I'm about to bestow on you. Don't forget this. Uh, God sends Habakkuk a vision showing that at an appointed time in the future, it may seem slow in coming, but it will come, God tells him that at that time, the righteous people will live by faith in the blessed hope presented in the vision, and that God will one day bring Babylon down using a never-ending cycle of retribution and violence. So at an appointed time, God's people will live by faith, and at that time, God will bring down his enemies permanently. The fact that God may, for a time, use a corrupt nation like Babylon doesn't mean that he endorses everything they do. He holds and will hold all nations accountable to his justice for their sins. So you can think of this as, at a time in the future, Babylon will fall, and any nation that acts like them will fall. God will make sure that that happens. And and this is a blessing being poured out on Habakkuk at this time of a hope that we can have. This may seem not like a good day for me, but I know that my enemies will have their day coming. God will pour out his wrath on evil, the Babylon, also the nations, at an appointed time in the future. God is certain of it. They'll have their day in court, if you will, and he will justly judge them. But God's not done yet. God particularized his reasoning for judgments by announcing five woes. So you see this at the end point of the second chapter. He, He gives the reason why he will crush the nations, or Babylon in particular. Now, the first two goes, first two woes, kind of go together. They're, they focus on economic trial, where these people are trapping others in debt. They're crooked with their wealth beating, wealth building. And God says, because they're so much like that, woe to them, I will crush them. The third woe goes after their enslavements, and they're treating people like animals. Because they are treating people like this, woe upon them, and I will crush them. The fourth woe goes after their partying lifestyle, like a lifestyle that's just filled with alcohol by reckless leaders as people suffer. So everyone's suffering, but these guys are getting drunk. Woe to them, I will crush them. And the fifth woe goes after their idolatry of money, power, and obsession with security. They, they have safety deposit box. They have walls. They have an impenetrable, or impenetrable assets. And God says, you think you will outlast me? Woe to you. I will bring you down. And these are all drastic indictments against Babylon. And the fascinating thing is that these things could easily be said about you and me today, here and elsewhere. The desire for the security of wealth, the desire to party like there's no tomorrow, the desire to treat people like they're ours, or the desire to make sure we rise to the top even if we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And just one of those is a pure indictment. But this is how God speaks about the evil Babylonians. This is about them, not about us, right? This is about how God speaks about the evil Babylonians. In the future, on God's good timing, they will certainly be dealt with. And with all that, see how this vision from God will lead to a particular decision from this complaining, questioning prophet. All of this is not an easy pill to swallow, but... God, in many ways, draws Habakkuk to make a decision. And look at how Habakkuk decides. So see how this prophecy shows Habakkuk's decision, how he responds to God. He complains, God responds. 
He complains again. God responds. What does Habakkuk do? Does he give another complaint? Does he flee? Well, Habakkuk wants Babylon to be dealt with now. He prays to the Lord. He wants all evil to be dealt with now. Why won't God deal with the evil Babylonians, though? And for you and for me, why does God allow awful nations, anytime we turn on the news, that seem to appear like Babylon, why does he allow them to rise up? Well, notice what Habakkuk does. What would you do? He spends time in prayer. He shows himself to react in prayer. He pleads with God to act in the present. So I think there's three things here. He pleads with God to act in the present. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it, asking God to act. In the midst of the years, make it known, asking God to act. In wrath, remember mercy. See what he does there? He pleads with God to act in the present. But then he prays, poetically, we see this written down, describing and adoring God's power. This is the second thing he does in his prayer. First thing he does, God, I I want this. Please act now. Crush them now. But second, let me adore you for who you are. He uses incredible words of adoring God. A terrifying appearance, seen through the clouds, fire, earthquakes. Now, biblically speaking, he's using biblical language toward God, about God. And this is all similar to the opening poems of Micah or Nahum, even the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. The Creator's attributes recall everyone's attention here. Friends, I wonder if you pray like this. It's good to go to the Lord with your requests. You're called to petition the Lord. He responds to you in his good timing. But do you adore him for who he is? That's giving the foundation for why he would do anything in your lives because of who he is. And do those words of adoration from you, do they sound like what God's people have said before you? In many ways, it's like he's praying the Bible out loud. How can we know the Lord? Well, we can know him through his word. How can we adore the Lord according to how he's revealed himself to us? He is focusing his heart through the revelation of how God has been said before. I don't know what's happening, Lord. I want this, but this is who you are. See, that's that second thing in his prayer. The first one is his want. The second thing is God's ways. And the third thing in his prophetic prayer is he describes the future defeat of evil among the nations. He's saying, this will be true. Saying it'll be like another exodus. It's clear in particular in this case of, of how he's talking about God's work in the future. He is using an image or an action of the past. This aim of using the scripture to understand what God's doing in the future the prophet is using this illusion or this analogy or this sign from what you and I know of the Exodus, where God thunders terror on his enemies in order to save his people in a drastic way. At the same time, and in verse 13, when God confronts evil, God will, it says, save his people and his anointed one. It's an amazing thing that that, uh, Habakkuk is prophesying about the future. He's saying, I want this. You are like this. And according to the vision you've given me, you will do this. You will save your people and also his anointed one. Now, you guys, us on this side of the cross, or maybe this side if you're thinking literally, we recognize that anointed one, that is not there by mistake, that from the line of David, there would be one who would come and save his people, also being preserved. You think of all the attacks that the Messiah had dealt with, everyone who wanted to kill him. According to this prophecy, you see this like glimmering, Christmas lights that are leading up to a glorious North Pole. Not a good analogy. 
Um, you see this as like a small, <laughs> as a, um, a small glimpse. A small, just read everything that I wrote down. All right, you see this as a small glimpse of what will ultimately come true. God will crush his enemies. God will preserve his people. And it will come through someone who's from the line of David, this anointed one. Habakkuk says God will defeat evil and bring down all the pharaohs and all the Babylons of the world, rescuing the remnant. Now, the bird's eye view shows the ending making perfect sense. He complains, God responds. He complains, God responds with a bigger answer. He asks God to act now, then he adores God's nature, then prophesies how God will see his promises fulfilled, and then finally, Habakkuk decides, look at verse 18 and 19, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What a response. I wonder if that reflects our prayers in all the muck in our lives. This is what I want. This is who you are. This is what you've promised to do. And regardless how I would decide, I will... I will choose to trust in you. I will follow your ways because I know it is for my good. He trusts God with everything. He has faith in God's will, knowing that it's good. Friend, I think the point of of all of this is even when the world is falling apart from disaster to war or whatever, we are to choose to decide to trust God with every moment of every circumstance and take joy in the reality that our God always keeps his covenant promises. There is not one thing that he said will happen that does not happen. There is not one promise that he made that he's made, and keep in mind, he's promised to sanctify you, to grow you in glory, to grow you in holiness, to make you like his son. There's nothing that he won't bring to completion. He will save his people. He will crush his enemies. He will make things right. And this is what it looks like for the righteous to live by faith. What was talked about in the second chapter of this book, this promise of Things will happen, and the righteous will live by faith. Those who are in God, who believe in God, who trust in God, they will live like it. They will pray like it. They will hope like it, and they will rest like it. Martin Luther was famous for calling people to say amen at the end of their their prayer. You know, sheepishly, many people, they pray wonderful prayers, then they just say amen. And he's like, No, the Lord of the universe is hearing you and will respond. Amen. It'll happen. This is from the book of Habakkuk. For you and for me, those who are righteous are to live like it, pray like it, hope like it, rest like it. We're not called to like it, but we're called to live like he willed it. This is the book of Habakkuk, and through it we see that we can be honest with God. We can complain about evil around us to God. Through it, we see that we can be honest with God. By it, we see that we can be comforted by God, and with it, we know that we can trust God. But I think an even bigger deal is made from the book of Habakkuk when you take the scriptures as a whole. I mean, the book itself will preach. This is great. But if you take this book and you put it in the context of revealed history, look at how it continues to preach to us today. This book is both a book of hope that we see within its context, but it's also a book of fulfillment that we see played out in what's called the New Testament. This is what's happened. Habakkuk longed for justice, 
and righteousness in a world filled with turmoil and injustice. And God answered him and said that it will happen in God's timing. Now think of that in the concepts of all of redemptive history. God will judge Israel. God will bring the nations under his foot. So shifting to my second main point, I think you see a remarkable connection between Habakkuk's longing and the fulfillment of his angst that was fully realized in Christ's first coming and will be totally finalized in Christ's second coming. You see, the prophets, we often think of the prophets only talking about the very, very end. You know, the second coming, the left-behind book series for some of you. We only think of the prophets as talking about something far away that you find in movies. Oftentimes, prophets not only speak to the things of the very end, but they also speak to the things that came in the person of Christ. Or they speak to the things that happened in the life of Christ. Or the things that were spoken about and prophesied about in the death and resurrection of Christ, or even the, the, resu- or the ascension of Christ, or the ruling and reigning of Christ. These prophecies are about Christ. Far too often, I think, we jump to the very end, neglecting the, what the prophetic words mean in whole, and they actually allow Christ to be left behind. In Christ, you find the ultimate answer to Habakkuk's plea for justice and righteousness. Was it not satisfied then? In Christ, you find the true and better fulfillment of the promise of salvation in his first coming. And in Christ, you find the assurance of the final judgment and establishment of his purified kingdom in the second coming. So, 2A, I want you to know how this prophecy anticipates Christ's first coming. After the first complaint to God, God answered Habakkuk by saying Israel would be punished and absorb God's wrath. But think of what that anticipates coming hundreds of years later. At the right time, Paul says, God the Father sent God the Son who would save God's people by doing what? Christ, Jesus, would absorb all of God's wrath as the true and better Israel, okay? true and better Israel being punished for the wrath of the sins which were brought on as a satisfying substitute for the sins of those who would believe in him. Or shortly, because of Israel's sins, God promised his wrath on Israel. Because of your and my sins, God sends his son, the true and better Israel, as he's called, to actually absorb God's wrath in your place. See how one speaks to the other. Think again about the phrase Habakkuk gives us. The righteous shall live by faith. In hard times, it'll be God's people who are called and equipped to live, not by sight, but by faith, where they trust the Lord. And it's the trust in God's love, which had been poured out on his son, It's this trust that anticipates what came to completion in Christ, in whom the promises of God are totally fulfilled, where sinners who were once in the hands of an angry God are actually dealt with by the hands of a loving Father on the Son. But it's even more obvious in the context of Habakkuk, God's use of wicked people, the Babylonians, Chaldeans, prefigures the way in which the injustice of the crucifixion of Christ was brought on by evildoers, yet brought on by God, salva- by God for salvation. So the first complaint corresponds, I think, with Christ's second coming, allowing this book to be even bigger than we can ever imagine. But the second thing I want you to see, to be, is I want you to know how this prophecy anticipates the second coming. I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. The book of Revelation, chapter 19. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the last book in the Bible. Go to the very end, start working your way back. There's only 22 chapters in there, so it's maybe one or two pages back. A big number, 19, and I'll be picking up in verses 11. Those are the little numbers. 
Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are like diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread down the nations in the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The New Testament repeatedly announces that Christ Jesus will come back one day. He has come... He lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, where he's ruling and reigning now, but he's not done yet. He will come again, in part to judge the nations. This will be his royal visit. This Savior's second advent will be the personal and physical, physical, visible triumph. Jesus will come to end history, to raise the dead and to judge the world, to impart of God's children their final glory and to usher in a reconstructed universe. What people expected Jesus to be at his first coming will be fulfilled in his second. A powerful warrior who would deliver God's people, who will slay what appears as dragons and judges everyone ruling the nations with an iron rod, where Jesus first came as a sacrificial lamb, he will secondly come as a lion, fixed on bringing down the nations because of their evil and sin. Revelation 19 says that he will have a robe dipped with blood, but this is not Christ's own blood on the cross shed for sinners, but the blood of his defeated enemies. He'll tread the wine presses with divine wrath, just as God promised in the prophets like our own. This graphic description of divine wrath may shock us because we don't fully grasp the offensiveness of sin and the need for true justice, but Jesus will give all people what they deserve, the punishment befitting the crime against God. So the scriptures have a glorious king exalted in heaven's throne and has a merciful high priest who helps us in our need. We have a coming champion who will enact true justice and end all wars. Jesus Christ is the true hope of all the earth, it says, the joy of every longing. 1 Thessalonians picks up on this arrival and says in chapter 5, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Remind you of any Babylonians. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So you see, I hope, you see how the prophecy anticipates the second coming. But I think lastly, what this text does is call you to determine something in the same way that Habakkuk did. Habakkuk said things, heard things, and then decided to pursue God in a certain way. Friend, you have one of two things here. Recognizing that in this book, all sin of man, all sins of men will be dealt with. Israel, Babylon, Christ, second coming. You've got two things here. Either your sins will be treated by the substitution of a sacrificial lamb 
or your sins will be treated as an, with an avenging lion. Christians for thousands of years have said with great hope, come, Lord Jesus. And they do that because of the hope that they were given in Christ's first coming. But friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that Christians say that with hope because Christ has come for them and already dealt with their sins completely and promises to come to them, to come again for them, to bring them home in glory and eternity. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus coming quickly is actually not good news for you. It is actually very haunting for you. Because when he comes, he will come to deal with those sins of those who didn't have faith in him, of those who are unrighteous, who haven't sought forgiveness from him, who look at him and say that he's not to be dealt with. And so the choice is yours, all of us today, to confess your need of God's forgiveness from your sins, to turn from your sins yourself to Christ to redeem you from your sins, to have faith that God alone can and will save you from his wrath as your sins deserve. The hope of the gospel is that it is still present for you, non-Christian. The hope of the gospel is that he is calling you to decide to pick your warrior, one as a substitute or one as your annihilator. The question is, will God's answer to Habakkuk's first complaint be the summoning of your salvation, or will God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint be the triumph of your termination? The call of God's word is for us to see him, for us to know him, and for us to respond. So friend, decide now for God to be your savior and not your avenger. Let's pray.